0: Welcome to the Academy podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation and International Ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. Today we're joined by Lisa Yaboa, who is my longtime friend and teacher, dating all the way back to 2004, when we lived and worked together at Sojourners Magazine in Washington, DC. An ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, Lisa currently serves as lead pastor of the Southeast Raleigh Table, a worshiping community in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's a 1999 graduate of Wofford College and a 2004 graduate of Duke University Divinity School. What fuels her life in ministry is seeing people become their best selves, and in turn, seeing the world become a better and more just place. Most would describe Lisa as a glutton for joy and a lover of people. She's a self-professed party starter, people watcher, biscuit-eating, cross-fitter, and admits to having a slight obsession with 90s R&B and the television show The Office our conversation encompasses everything from anti-racism to sitting on the mourner's bench to sabbath as resistance to joy unspeakable joy and more being with lisa is like all the elements of earth fire water and air decided to have a gathering and they decided to gather and dance inside a person inside her Lisa is equal parts fire and water, earth and air, inviting us all to dance at the feet of justice and of joy. Listen on, beloveds. Listen deep. Listen wide. Listen. Well, Lisa, welcome to the Academy podcast. So good to see you. And of course, I've shared a bit about you in the introduction and um you and i of course go way back
1: in, yes
0: i don't know 2004 2004 it was a yeah.
1: 2000 2004 2005 let's just say i'll never forget those years
0: no <laughs> <laughs> we won't and of course we're talking about working together at sojourners in washington dc and we not only work together but live together yes and um Worked alongside, lived alongside, and yes, it was quite the adventure. It was quite the adventure. We were very different people back then. Yes. Thank, yes, thank God we for growth. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Um, I know I often say, if it weren't for the people who loved me mm-hmm. when I was uh, young twenties, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't be who I am today. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's it's interesting you say that because. I've been telling folks um one of the reasons i don't believe in cancel culture Mm. is because if if you were to read the things that i wrote when i was 16 17 18 19 20 if you were to engage me when i was even coming out of seminary it's not that i was a bad person but you know i could have easily been canceled um i was i was trying to find my way and um it has it has helped me to come with a level of grace for people in their own lives because I've had to have a level of grace for myself. Mm.
0: Yeah. I read something this past week that said, let's go ahead and normalize changing our opinion mm. and, and voicing that changing our practices and vo- let's just normalize that. Yeah. Because if we can't do that, then what can we do? That's right. <laughs> so That's right. yeah. Yeah. Well, I love to begin with talking about uh, and getting to know you and our guests by talking about the spiritual geography of your faith, the, the landscape. Uh, so tell us uh, where you come from. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? Yeah.
1: So it's very hard for me to talk about my faith if I don't actually talk about myself. And that's not about me being self-centered. It's simply that my faith is rooted in a story. And um, I can't remember who it is who says that um, if you have a belly button, then you're connected to people. And if you're connected to people, you're connected to a story. So my faith is connected to a story, it's connected to people. Um, My parents are both West African immigrants. They're from Ghana, West Africa, moved to the US uh, in the kind of mid to late 70s, Uh, came to Nashville, Tennessee, partly for my dad's schooling. Um, I was the first person in my family born on American soil. And then um, very shortly after living a stint of time in Nashville, and then um, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, we moved to the low country of South Carolina, Um, near Charleston. And if anyone knows anything about Charleston, it's a very storied place in that um, a a large majority of the slave trade came through that port city. And so uh, if you are vacationing in Charleston, you see the vestiges. I mean, you literally can smell it in the air, the vestiges of my ancestors. And also too, very much tied to my West African-ness as well. And so I would say that my my faith is a very storied faith, you know um, Ghanaians, when they speak, they speak almost always in, in parables and proverbs and so i don't know i don't think of faith as being only like a head, a head exercise but a head, a head married to heart and a heart married to mouth um, that you're going to speak the thing, you 're going to moan the thing, you 're going to cry the thing connected to then also um, growing up in the black church um, i'm black i you know consider myself black, yes, I'm West African, but um, just really own my blackness in the American context. And growing up in a predominantly black church space uh, where many of the church mothers didn't have formal education, but they knew the liturgy, it lived in them. I mean, it really lived in them. And so um, to watch folks um, pray the Agnus Dei from uh, a place not with their eyes, but from their gut, that's what formed me. And I actually had a real love affair of the church. I mean, to me, it was the most magical, mystical place ever where you got cough drops as candy and you sat with people who clapped their joy and danced their joy. And I would say that my, my faith is very much um, tied, tied to that. Um, and so it, it smells like white diamonds,
0: <laughs>
1: oh. <laughs> you know, being snuggled up. It was snuggled up in the bosom of, of, of a church mother by the name of Hazel Limehouse and um, Viola Pringle and Maddie Limehouse and Ruby Johnson. It, um, it, smells, like, uh, it smells like sulfur in bathrooms because, you know, there's always a water drip. Um, it looks like people who've lived Uh, hard lives, but are resilient and will not let their joy be stolen from them. And it feels like joy, unspeakable joy. um, I would say is my, um, if you wanted to ask my, when I think about like the geographical landscape, maybe I think of it as what's my in the beginning. My in the beginning is um, this storied way of how I've come to know and to love Jesus, you know, to be on, to ride hard for team Jesus. But I had people who uh, made that come alive in ways that again, it just was not a head exercise. Um, it was it was really like praying for groceries uh, and hoping that groceries would arrive. And um, and I'm grateful for that. I really am grateful for that. Even if I've reimagined it as a pastor, uh, what that looks like, you know, we the, the faith of my of the '80s is very different than my faith in 2020. But I don't ever, I will never reject that. I, I cannot divorce myself from that.
0: Yeah. So when did, was there a moment that you knew you were called to be a pastor and what did that look like, uh, as c- coming in your particular body as a black woman? Um, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Four score, seven years ago. No. So, um, Interestingly, my dad is a United Methodist pastor, and when I was born, he, uh, he said that he knew my life was going to be given to God in some way, which is why I'm named Lisa. Um, it comes of, of a derivative of Elizabeth, which means "consecrated to God. So my dad was like, "Let's go with that. It was going to be Gretchen. And I'm, to all the Gretchens out there, love y'all, but that's just not I mean if yeah, I'm not a Gretchen. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. you're Lisa. all of my life. People used to say to me, I think you're going to be in ministry. Oh, there's an anointing on you, you know, Um, which I love. I love the fact that like, you know, older black people would just look me in my face and say, I mean, you know, um to like trust in the power that can come out of a child you know and i was just like uh uh-uh, there's no way i want to be a pastor my dad was a pastor um that there's a whole lot that's tied up in that but i just just like i don't want to be him um i wanted to kind of flex my own agency but um come as to say a series of you know a series of um i think of just like these pivotal moments in my life you know i worked at Lake Janaluska, which is a United Methodist uh, retreat center, all throughout my college years, and I was good at it. Um, But again, I I didn't necessarily feel called to ministry. Then I went to seminary, um, and in my application, I think I wrote, the last thing I want to be is a pastor, but give me all the coins and I'll come. And they did, um, and I worked in churches, but I just... I just, I, I had a thing in me that was very much resistant for good reason. I don't, I don't, I don't uh, chastise that part of me. It was actually when we were in, when we were in um, Washington, D.C. And um, a dear colleague and a friend of mine who was also my uh, field education director when I was at Duke called me up. It was after, uh, it was during Holy Week. I think it was actually during, it was on Good Friday. He might've called or either Monday, Thursday, it was one of the Mm -hmm. two. And he just said, Hey, I have an opportunity to have a new associate pastor um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Would you want to do this? And I don't know why, but after having had a season of praying for 40 days, I just said, yes. And I always say this, um, because I, I did say to him, you know, Bruce, I don't want to be a pastor. You know that I don't want to be a pastor. But I also, too, was feeling very restless with, um, with our t- in our time at, in, in, at Sojourners. And I'm just going to be honest about it. I felt like we allowed the sociopolitical space to hold the words of the church hostage, like to utilize those words when it made sense to utilize those words, but then not to necessarily be shaped by those words. And I was like, uh-uh, y'all can't do that. Like you need to, if you're going to, if you're going to use the liturgy, which is the work of the people, and we really believe that these words aren't empty, then you need to also live in such a way that seems transformative, that it's not just a great one-liner or a, um, a great sound, sound bite. It, 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 it's, like, let's not do this to like to the faith of a Ruby Johnson. You know, the women who like. Oh, let's not let's not um pander, or um, I mean, I might even use the word pimp out the the beauty of the beauty of the church. So I was also feeling like mm, this is not this doesn't feel this isn't it for me. I mean, I don't know that. Um, I, I don't mind straddling kind of the kind of sociopolitical space along with the church. I think they're actually, they can hold hands beautifully if, if it's done well, but um, I was like, let me give the church a chance. So I came to Raleigh and I always say that they loved me into the pastor. I never believed I could be. And it was then that I got very uh, committed to the ordination process. And, you know, um, my mentor by the name of Bruce Stanley, always said to me, Lisa, do you think you'll do harm? Do you think you'll do all the good you can? Do you think you'll stay in love with God? Um, well, then give it, a, give it a chance. And if after a year you're like, this thing is not for you, then decide not to. And that, would, that was enough gracious space for me. I will say, though, as a Black woman, because most, most of my ministry has been navigating uh, majority culture or white predominantly white spaces, I... Um, I have to say that it was when I was getting closer to like age 40 was when I was starting, when I began to really realize um, meaning to own my particularities. And, you know, we can talk a little more about that. But I think so much of my life has been lived making white people comfortable, you know, that um, I had put something on mute. And I had like a pivotal moment where I was like, I really can't do this anymore. And it's actually not not to the benefit of the people who I serve. So um, I'll have to say that it was later on in ministry that I probably began to realize I can't take it for granted, this body that I occupy.
0: Was there something that happened a culmination (laughs) of things? Tell tell us how did you get there?
1: Listen, I, um, my, um, so I, 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 served, um, I'm, I'm a part of a multi-site church. And so I, am a lead pastor of a new faith community, but before I kind of transitioned into that role, I was working at a very large, um, United Methodist church, downtown church. I mean, very vibrant, robust, predominantly white, like, you know, Searsucker convention during the summer times. No, yeah. not to say that black people don't wear Searsucker, but I'm just saying it was mm-hmm. like a Searsucker convention, mm-hmm. uh, in the summer And my um, senior pastor, he went on sabbatical. And because I, as the associate pastor, one of the associate pastors who had been there the longest, basically took like the lead role uh, during the summer. And just so that I could get to all these committee meetings and everything else on time, I decided to get braids for the summer. That's when I realized, and I think my members realized, oh, she's black. Like we can't, right size her into the imagination that we have for who she is because she is like expressing something that one we have very little knowledge of two we're always asking her every five seconds when she walks down the hallway to educate us on and thirdly something that makes her look distinctly different than us and the level of microaggressions that (laughs) were enacted that summer touching my hair without asking singing jamaican like singing or talking in a jamaican accent um calling my braids dreadlocks which you know dreadlocks are are great but like all these things or even i had a, a member once i got the braids taken out at the end of the summertime and um uh someone said oh you're you're, you're back to your normal hair and i thought ooh that was when it was also around the time that Moral Mondays were happening in Raleigh with the uh, Reverend William Barber, and I very much felt compelled to be there and to uh, and to march and to um, be a tangible witness. But I was also thinking in the back of my mind that okay, I have to hold space for this very large congregation that has lots of different um, thoughts in the in the polis around you know um, how we show up in the political realm and always having to manage. What's going to be too much? What's going to be too little? Do we have enough energy to do email responses to the 15 people who don't, you know, think that Reverend Barbara is, is in the right. And I just remember feeling incredibly disappointed in myself. Like, wow, being a pastor is actually making it hard for me to in my mind to be a faithful disciple. So those two things were, uh, were kind of the catalyst around, wait a minute. I think I have put myself on mute in order to allow other people to have agency, but not myself to have agency. And, you know, growing up as a Black child, you know, um, I, you learn some survival mechanisms. And what I did is I just took them into my adulthood of how to be socially appropriate, you know, to code switch when you walk into a room, respectability politics, you know, all these things are really our survival, survival mode. But I think what they do is it begins to create this idea of the exceptional Black. Hmm. Um, and then that becomes a a heavy weight to wear because I wanted to say I'm human and, um, and maybe the, I'm not like over and against a whole community that I'm a part of. (laughs) Like, and, um, it, 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 it it began for me a process of, of saying, I think I, I, I used the idea that as a pastor, you, you take a vow, you come to serve and not to be served. I took it, too far, and that I extended so much grace to the point of it being irresponsible grace. Mm. That when I needed to tell people, don't put your hands in my hair, and let me tell you why. Or don't say, I'm, I, I'm sweet like your little granddaughter, and you pat me on the back. Or don't tell me about your, the, the person who's your help, because uh, that's the only Black person you know that you want me to know. Like In those moments, maybe I could have called people to, 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 to a greater humanity in themselves. I think um, for people who I don't think people realize, like, if you're white, that whiteness actually can dehumanize you. <laughs> um, and so to, I wish I had just called people to something greater, to say, no, you know, when you enact this microaggression, it's because of a, because of a macroaggression that you can divorce yourself from. And um, yeah, around age 38, I was like, I don't know that I have the energy. Um, I think I've been disappointing myself by trying to, like, pander to others.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're 43 now?
1: I'm 43 now. And my 40th birthday, I celebrated that bad boy like it was going out of style. Yeah. The 40th was when I said, I don't want to edit myself anymore.
0: Yeah. I'm 38. So, mm-hmm. uh, listen, friend, yeah. here we are. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, as you have been intentional about not editing yourself Mm -hmm. what has that looked like are you still in a predominantly white congregation tell us about southeast uh raleigh table that you're leading now uh what does that community look like and and as you as sort of the continued um unedited fully lisa
1: yeah so um the The community that I was a part of, that was kind of the launching church for the Southeast Raleigh table, um, it is it is majority white, and our Southeast Raleigh table is also um, right now majority white, but but way more but more diversity um, than. Uh, the other context that I've ever been in. The, uh, the thing about our Southeast Raleigh table, and though we don't put it like on our website, is that we kind of decenter whiteness. So even though it's a majority culture, we decenter whiteness. So people who come to our community who are white kind of know, oh, um, we're going to lean more into uh, the practices of people within our community. And our community that the Southeast Raleigh table is a part of is majority black and brown bodies. And so it needs to make sense first for our neighbors as opposed to what we might just like automatically lean into for the people who are in, who are in the pews. And so for them to make that, that commitment, um, to make that covenant is, I don't take it lightly. Um, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, we keep race on the table. So that's been really helpful so that our relationships have some integrity to them because diversity is lovely. I think diversity is great, but diversity can't be an, uh, a means to an end. Mm-hmm. um, being anti-racist, you know, you can be diverse, uh, and not be equitable, i.e. plantations were diverse. That doesn't mean that plantations were equitable. And so we need to make sure, I think in church spaces in particular, you got to be real careful to not tap, make diversity, your golden calf. Um, cause you can, you can still enact violence on people, uh, in, in diverse spaces. So, um, it is absolutely beautiful and it's absolutely wonderful. And I think because uh, race is always on the table, and as we imagine uh, ourselves as a, you know, uh, very much in love with Jesus and how Jesus shows up in this world, it um, it is actually for me as a pastor freed me up. Um, I don't think hard. About right now, we're kind of—I want to say—we're in a new revolution. I don't think to myself, "Oh no, am I going to get 50 emails if I go March today?" And um, you know, uh, and I know folks have various uh, ways that they understand um, this present administration. And I want to, and I want to make space for that. Uh, to you know, I don't want to condemn anyone who might have uh, voted for our current our current president, but uh, for my community, um, b- based on just some of the policies of this administration and even just the behavior of this administration after the election, um, you know, t- to not say anything would have been a very hurtful, uh, hurtful thing. And so it's, I-, I would just say that like my, I've been able to show up my full self my whole self has been able to show up in this season of ministry. And that has felt incredibly freeing where I'm not always trying to decide what needs to become a caveat, a footnote, a side item comes after the semicolon. I, I can lead from, my, from, my, uh, from the fullness thereof of what it is to be a black woman who also happens to pastor this uh, multicultural, diverse church. Yeah
0: so when you say you're decentering whiteness your race is always on the table tell us what that looks like like yeah in the day to day
1: yeah so um for instance we sometimes have affinity groups and um like like just in in february we did um an all poc all persons of color worship service just i mean um because we think that that's incredibly important. We do sometimes all white, um, spaces. Like we have a, we have this, these ongoing conversations called doing the work where, and I don't hold space for them. So, so that, um, I actually have two facilitators who are white who hold space for our white members who have questions, concerns, thoughts, you know, they're also dealing with their lives being disoriented because of, um, you know, I think when you, when you say, gosh, I I really want to Think through my, you know, privilege or um, how supremacy has shaped has shaped me. Um, they need to have people who they can they can really share out of the uh, the overflow without worrying about who they're going to who they're going to offend. I also think that um, white people need to learn how to love white people better.
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. You know, I think sometimes there's a lot of like woke shaming that happens, mm-hmm. and so. Um, we really want people to like be be humane to each other i'm i'm kind of like i need you all to be humane to each other because you 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 know you you have to lead each other i can't ask you to ask black members to tell you x y and z but if you also won't, won't choose to be resources for each other then that's not helpful so that's another way that um i think you know i think oftentimes um in the culture we live in, we always ask, yes, we should listen to Black voices, we should listen to people of color, we should learn from people of color, but we don't need to always ask them to educate you or to be, you know, to hold your pain or whatever. And so in our, in our community, diversity does not mean, let's look to all the people of color to tell us everything or to do everything for us. In our worship practices, even though, um, you know, uh, we are, like I said, still major- majority white, we sing songs, we lean into practices of lament and practices of joy that are oftentimes fo- found in the black church. Now, granted, it's gonna have a different flavor when people are still learning what that looks like to lean into those practices and not appropriate those practices. But we, this, is not, this is not, how can I make you all feel very comfortable in worship? It's like, no, we're gonna stretch each other, um, that we won't make black church practices into like exo- something exotic, but maybe something that can also stretch and form form your faith. And so um, that's one. The other is um, kind of a vestige of white supremacy, is uh, hierarchical models of leadership. It's always got to be like, I always say that supremacy and patriarchy are siblings. And when they start fighting they tear up the whole house, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, we actually kind of move um, beyond hierarchical models and have taken on and adopted a collaborative model. So there are things that people are better at than I am as the pastor and they do it and they're unleashed to do that. And, um, we have like our children's minister has great, is just great acumen for like dealing with our community partners. Okay. Unleash her to do those types of things. It's not just about like curriculum for our children, which is I mean also important. Um, so yeah, we just, there's just some ways in which we, um, we live with one another that um, that people just know, huh, this feels a little bit different. And it's always a non-negotiable. I mean, I don't necessarily get into a lot of like little side, side energy, like side wars about things. It's kind of like, this is just, this is just it. Like I know some people felt a little uncomfortable when we did our first um, POC worship night. And, and I can just say, we're going to, we're going to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, but we're not going to backpedal.
0: Yeah.
1: And the same thing is true when someone, someone kind of got a little bit, um, it was actually another person who was white, got a little bit um, miffed about why we would hold space for only white people. They were like, that's the problem. And I'm like, no, we are, we're committed to also like creating space for people to grow and to be stretched and for, um, for folks in my community to have, to have allies among one another. I mean, part of white supremacy too is to create this individualistic kind of way of being, you know, every man, for, every man or woman for him or herself. And
0: mm, yeah. right.
1: so, yeah, I'm sorry. That's like a
0: long no, way. Oh, that's, yeah. so there's so much there. Um, I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about the difference between leaning in and appropriating.
1: Mm-hmm. So, hmm. I always feel like appropriate you. So this is the thing about leaning in appropriating is that it's part science and part art (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that some of it really does come out of discernment. And some of it, um, comes out of like, um, from restraint. So the restraint might be the science, the art might be the discernment. I would say that like, um, that, um, If there is a level of voyeurism in it, one of my professors used to call it museum syndrome. If you you watch or you do something with this sense that it is so other than you, then I would say that's appropriating. Um, But if you are doing something because you're actually now beginning to realize how it is good for you, and you want to celebrate that thing, because that thing is good for you, then I would say you're leaning in. So we sing the, um, the National Black Anthem, uh, Black National Anthem, um, every year, you know, um, sometimes multiple times. Uh, yeah, I think maybe we might do it multiple times in a year. Hmm. But, um, and, uh, I, you know, I remember someone saying to me that they felt, they felt almost, like, it was unfair for them to hold those words. It was, a, it was a, a, a white individual in my community. And the very fact that she could say that helped me to realize, ah, uh, she's, she's on the path of leaning in. Someone who's gonna, who might be white, who's like in the back with their fists in the air, you know, seeing it like it's their full-time job, but it's performative, then I might say appropriating, <laughs> appropriating you know. Um, and so, you know, I, I wish I could say I, I could, because you know, someone asked me, they were like, oh, I want to I wear a head wrap. Well, I know people who wear head wraps and I don't even think twice about it because I just know that, they're, they, um, that, that it's, it is not a performative moment. Um, and so, yeah, I wish I could tell you that there's like a formula to figure it all out. Like you've got to be with black people for 14 years, then you're allowed, um, <laughs> you know, but... Um, mm. But I think it's part science. Yeah. And, and this is where people have to learn to trust themselves, to ask themselves hard questions like, why am I doing this? Like, I would even say that now, again, as we're moving in this new, this new kind of uh, revolution, you know, I would ask people, is this allyship going to end in two weeks? Are you performing being an ally or are you truly an ally for, for my white brothers, um, sisters and neighbors? You know, or... Um, are you in it for the long haul? Because to be anti-racist is to wake up every single day and to say that I am determined to ask myself hard questions so that I might be faithful in this world yeah. to myself and to others. It is not, a, I, as soon as I read *Right Fragility, I'm good. Um, if that's the case, wow. You know, you, the, the first time that um, a black person doesn't validate you and you crumble or you're like, this is not worth it, you're gonna you, you have to realize like, this has got to be an everyday thing. And the same way that I would say to people of color, That if we don't also interrogate where we have sipped from the cup of supremacy, how we've internalized racism, I mean, that's not, it does not feel good for me to think about seasons in my life when I've pandered to whiteness. But if I don't go there, Mm -hmm. I become dangerous to myself and and I become dangerous uh, to others. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, I wish I could tell you that it's going to always be easy. I think sometimes you can feel it on the inside. Um, Yeah. Part science, part art.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. Thank you. Um, I have felt that way when I have been in white spaces and we've sung lift every voice and sing, I have felt the leaning in as you Uh describe it. And, and I have also felt the performance and, um, giving words to that. Yeah. Helps uh, me identify that more. And I might say say that sometimes we bump
1: into things through our folly. So I want to give some grace in that. Mm -hmm um that maybe the first two times it was appropriating but the third time it's a leaning in yeah um so i i again i'm I'm not i'm not saying put i don't want people to be dangerous uh or to be harmful but
0: sometimes you gotta try (laughs) yeah and be willing to not get it right
1: yeah yeah like what would it look like for uh, for an all-white congregation instead of singing lift every voice and sing where um, you know, for um, for us in the black church, or or for or, or people who are black, we typically always stand when we sing "Lift Every Voice and Sing." What would it look like to play the recording of "Lift Every Voice and Sing" in a white space, and invite uh, members to kneel as an act of as an act of as an act of contrition that maybe they participated in a way that they're black friends and co-workers have had to sing this, Don't Eat the Rod We tre- Tread. You know, what would it look like that, you know, to say, we're going to be in a seated position with our heads bowed while we hear, listen to it? You know, sometimes it's a matter of like moving the, our, liturgical way, our liturgical ways by just a bit to make them more God-honoring for our contexts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the academy is so much about the inner and the outer Mm -hmm. and so much of what I'm hearing you talk about right now is doing that inner work. Mm. Uh, I heard you say that about, okay, the work of anti-racism is waking up every day day. and looking inward, yeah, asking the hard questions, being honest about that. So that whatever it is we are doing outward, um, actually is grounded and rooted in a place of trust and a place of exploration and a place of compassion and kindness. And um, so thank you uh, Mm. for, for reminding us of that and um, highlighting that. And I wonder if you might just say a little bit more about the dance of spirituality and justice Mm. Contemplation and action, mm. and particularly in these days where it is a revolution.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and as we know, Audre Lorde saying, <laughs> yeah. "Revolution is not a one-time event." Um, no, no. Uh,
1: no. But but, she, Audre Lorde also said that self-care is a it's a um, oh my gosh, is an act of resistance. Yeah, you know so. Yeah. Um, when we, when we lay down, when we lay down our spiritual practices, then I don't know, I can't trust what you're going to pick up. <laughs> like, and you know, if you look at the, if you look at the great, some of the great leaders within social movements, Mother Teresa, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, one thing that we will find is that in seasons when they when some of their spiritual practices were. Waning thin is when they also felt like they were waning thin. When discretions happened, when the sense of like um, self-forgetting or uh, um, a, ma- a major distance from feeling a major distance or breach with God happened in those in those moments. And it's not to say that we we can be praying every single day and still feel far away from God. So I'm not I'm not um, saying that somehow they were doing something wrong. But they would have, they even confessed, these greats confessed that when they felt spiritually distant, that it affected the ways in which they showed up uh, in, um, in the work that they did. I love that in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe in social holiness and also personal piety, and we don't take one over the other. We don't, we don't rank them, it's collaborative. See, even Wesleyan, huh. collaborative yeah. models. Um, it was collaborative. And what I would say is that When you are praying, when you are attending to the means of grace, when you are in community with others, when you um, are in small groups that are people are asking you um, hard questions and holding you accountable, when you are feasting on Jesus in whatever Eucharistic means you need, when you are resting and believing that your rest is resistance and taking time for Sabbath and recognizing that you're not going to be the one who is going to make the system come down, but it's the power of God within you that might bring the system down and that God is God, whether you are wearing pajamas or you are you know dressed to the nines um that you you didn't breathe into god the breath of life that god breathed into you the breath of life and so you're going to cease and desist and rest when you do those things guess what you become just Hmm. and then i will trust that you're going to do work to make the world just but if i see you popping off in your family, if I see you beating and abusing your body, if I see you being inhumane with yourself because you are not leaning and attending to spiritual practices, I cannot trust the work you're going to do out in the world. How do I know how you'll treat other people's bodies? How do I know how you're going to use your words? How will I know that you're not overcompensating for the ways in which you don't care for yourself? Personal piety makes you just within yourself. When I rest, I say I love myself. So that way, when I'm out in the world and I'm cradling someone's child or I'm advocating, um, I'm advocating for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, the Ahmaud Arbery's in the world, for the kids in my neighborhood, for the people that I love, for um, the, the mother who is you know, just stressed and anxious about their child, they can trust uh, what, how I'm trying to be at work in the world because they can trust how God is at work in me. But I think when you start to divorce spiritual practices from what you're up to in the world, I will tell you very quickly, I just, I mean, I, I've actually had this conversation with um, some of my um, activist friends, like, I stop trusting you when on a micro level, you're not living out the, the very things that you want to happen on a macro level. And I think our spiritual disciplines, I mean, even silence and solitude, um, our spiritual practices help us to be, to show up differently in the world. It's, it's how I know that you're not just going to go be with those kids for photo op. right? Because you are doing um, the examine. Yeah. And so I know you're asking yourself hard questions. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I would say that our, I think personal piety helps us to be just to ourselves and then social holiness helps us to be just in the world. But if you don't do both, Um, And I would also say that personal piety would make you say, if I'm just in myself, why would I not want it to overflow? So it can't be like, it's just me and Jesus. we just chilling. It's like, no, what does justice look like? And justice might look like the way in which you show up for your children could be the way in which you are, um, because you are raising kids who are anti-racist or you're raising kids who don't uh, patriarchy hasn't seeped into their bones you're raising children who are like joy unspeakable joy for other people um
0: yeah
1: yeah it doesn't necessarily mean marching but it needs to mean something
0: yeah so speaking of rest you mm. had a beautiful much needed sabbatical i think in 2019 yeah
1: the sabbatical is a jam it's a jam everyone yeah. Everyone right now, tell somebody you're taking a sabbatical. <laughs> yeah. So the summer of 2019 and I'm grateful. I did not say I'll wait till the summer of 2020. I would have been, uh-uh. I'd be in the fetal position right now. Yeah. That would have been a bad So, <laughs>
0: what, what did your sabbatical uh, look like and feel like and, and what did you uh, lay down mm-hmm. and, what, and what did you pick up? hmm
1: so my sabbatical um, was not to produce anything. I, did, I, I told folks from the get go, this is not about coming out with a body of work, but it was about me coming home to myself. Um, I think so, I so over identified with my pastoral identity that um, I forgot what it is just to be Lisa. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think I show up well as a. I pa- I mean, people will say, oh, we love your personality. Um, but I think I just over-identified with the tasks of pastor that I forgot. Yeah. Just the things that are my first love. So I rested a lot. Um, I'm, I'm what they call an Enneagram nine, which they call the peacemakers and sometimes Enneagram nines are very sleepy that we, we fall asleep to our own dreams is kind of the way that we're described. And so every morning I started with this question, Lisa, what do you want and what do you want to do? And There are times when I drove around town in a bathing suit. There are times when I walked through Whole Foods, like twirling in the aisles and eating from the bar at Whole Foods and sitting outside and then going back in for a second round, because that's what I wanted to do. Um, Mm -hmm. I snuggled lots of babies. I drank lots of like cold brew and iced coffee, which is not like a thing, but I just did what I, I, I took Jesus's question in the first chapter of John's gospel seriously, when he asked the disciples, what are you looking for? What do you want? Um, I think I had just so tamped down that question. I was so aware when other people had needs or wants, um, and I was a great cheerleader for what people are looking for and what people want, that I could not, like, I could not adequately name to a person What do I want? You know, what do I want? And so um, I I, I traveled, um, saw friends, um, but I I did not over schedule. I didn't feel like okay, I need to know the first couple of months. I'm going to do this and the other. The only thing that I um, that was incredibly important for me is uh, the second week. Going into the second week of my sabbatical, I uh, went to onsite, which is. kind of a, a, kind of a, I want, I'll, I'll call it a therapeutic space just outside of Nashville. Um, and um, I, I felt like there were some things in my life that needed to be healed. I had thought about doing a silent retreat somewhere uh, at a monastery in South Carolina, but I realized I would have to put the pressure on myself to create the moment. And I, I, needed, I needed someone to take that heavy lifting up front for me. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, Onsite was also, like healing some things that came out of there free. I mean, really liberated from some stuff that I had been holding on to that I did not know I had been holding on to. And so I would say that my sabbatical, I actually have a, a, a podcast recording about the rest and my sabbatical. I, I would say that my sabbatical helped me to come home to myself. It really did heal me, it helped me to get very clear about. Um, About about what I want, and when I came back into work, when people are like, "I bet you're," you know, hitting the ground running. I said, "No, I hit the ground twirling." For the first week, I wore like tool skirts because I I was like, "I'm not going back to a life of being held kind of hostage
0: uh, by the tyranny of busyness." Mm. Yeah, I remember one of those seeing one of those tool skirts on (laughs) on Instagram was. Uh Uh-huh. We had a cute, you know, black shirt uh-huh. on with uh-huh. it, and and also I, um, so I'm a, I identify as a three on the enneagram. Mm. I go, I go to you and help, yeah.
1: yes, right. in
0: integration. Yep, yeah. and I um, disintegrate to, uh, to
1: a nine, to a nine, and You've then we watch lots of shows.
0: <laughs> what do you do?
1: Oh you,
0: yeah, I I completely withdraw. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just shut down like. Mm-hmm peace out. I'm done. Uh-huh. That's my, uh-huh. that's my head in the sand and I
1: call it a new hairstyle.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. There's some real comfort in that until it, it really isn't. Until it's not. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. I participated in the service of lament mm-hmm. that you, uh, led for your community. Uh, it's on Southeast, uh, rally tables facebook um mm-hmm. and of course i only point people there if they're actually going to participate in it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know you talked about voyeurism earlier and uh that this is not something to view or mm-hmm. to um yeah to to drop drop our you know our jaws mm-hmm. at um it is something to participate in and um if we can't do that then we need to not yeah you know, click on the link yep. um <laughs> You you let us in mourning, of course, the more than 100,000 deaths mm-hmm. uh, due to COVID. You let us in mourning that we live uh, mm-hmm. in a country, in a world that says black lives don't actually matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you let us in mourning all that breaks God's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote you and I said, mm-hmm. you know, wor- words escape me and... I am barefoot Mm -hmm. because um, I felt like Mm -hmm. you uh, not only create holy ground, but you are holy ground. Mm -hmm. And that is how I experience you, understand you, uh, hold Mm -hmm. you. And I'm grateful that I get Mm -hmm. to call you friend. Um, So if you would just talk to us a little bit about the place of mourning Hmm. in the spiritual life? Yeah. Um,
1: you know, I don't know that I've, I've not known a season of life where mourning hasn't been um, a part of my life, but I think some of that is my story. Um, you know, I, I grew up with, and I'm going to say women in particular, but it doesn't mean that men didn't do this as well, who tarried, you know, some of you might be familiar with that, but who literally moaned their prayers, who cried their prayers. Um, we have this practice called, you know, sitting on the mourner's bench where someone could just be crying and you wouldn't know why they were crying, but you would go and sit with them and you would just rock with them. Uh, and it's just kind of like their sorrow becomes your sorrow, their tears become your tears. And that, that wasn't something that was questioned. Um, you know, I shared that I, did not grow up in a community that when you cried at a funeral, anyone said, I'm sorry. I, 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 still kind of like boggles my mind. The idea of saying sorry for tears. It's kind of like when death happens, why would we not weep? Even Jesus wept. Mm -hmm. Um, when he here, you know, he hears of, um, of Lazarus is Lazarus's death and Jesus has to go withdraw when he hears about his cousin's death when John the Baptist dies. I, I'm like, I, I'm not going to say something like, my tears will not be wasted. Um, and I think in my community, there have been, when, there, when th- things happen on the national stage, uh, if I want them to, to learn what it is to be compassionate people to themselves and to others, then they um, have to build up muscles for weeping and lamenting the things that that break other people's hearts so like when the shootings happened at pulse nightclub we, we 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 always will then start our worship service with a moment of like mourning and it's not like oh wasn't it sad what happened at pulse nightclub it's like we're gonna like enter in when the parkland shootings happened we just entered in um like I said, after the elections, I know that for some people, it might have felt like not a significant moment, but for my community, we had to enter in, you know, um, children being detained at the border, we enter in, um, we had a member who died a very tragic death, we're going to enter in. I feel like lament and mourning help us to uh, tap into a part of our humanity that oftentimes distraction and, and, and honestly, this culture that we live in that is very uncomfortable with people being uncomfortable. Uh, we that's why we love to manage other people's pain so why we love to say hope you get I hope you feel better you got to move on because it, what basically what we're saying is like your discomfort makes me uncomfortable yeah. um, your wailing makes me uncomfortable um and it might actually make you uncomfortable not that you don't want someone to be screaming on the top of their lungs is that it might it might um bring up for you the things in your life that you've left behind and you did not get to mourn so for some of us, it's our childhoods. You know, we keep saying, oh, my mom and my dad were so great. And you're like, no, actually I, like, I, I, I died a death when I was six years old with my parents X, Y, and Z. And so I think mourning like taps into a part of us that like, it, it cannot be controlled. But I feel um, if I want to uh, develop humanity in my community, then we have to develop practices of lament and, and mourning, and, and and I would actually say that lament and mourning is very countercultural, um, and if and I think as Christians we need to adopt more countercultural practices. Um, it's very, uh, it it's it's not countercultural for certain communities. You know, so there are certain communities that actually hire mourners, but it's countercultural, I think, in the American context to be people who, who sit and just weep. Um, I I sometimes say that the, one of the greatest, one of the greatest um, obstacles for Americans or for our, or for America is our bent towards amnesia. We just forget very quickly.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, I think mourning makes you very present. Lament makes you very present that you can't say, I forgot.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the kaddish in mm. the Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. and the way the way um, Rabbi David Horowitz, who's one of our academy faculty and one of my friends and teachers, um, describes it is that you stand with mm-hmm. the the mourners, mm-hmm. uh, like the in the community, all those who are mourning. Yeah, stand and then the whole community stands with you yeah. and you say yeah. the prayer and just for me, uh, when I learned that I was in a place of my own deep mm. grieving and, uh, sorrow and, and I was so uncomfortable with it. <laughs> I, I didn't, I mean, I was so like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't I, want to be here. Yeah. I don't want to be here. I don't want other people to see it. Um, I had all this baggage from my Mm -hmm. evangelical upbringing right of like emotional manipulation Mm -hmm. so like if I was I was taught not to trust Mm -hmm. right my tears because if I started crying in a worship service then I was being manipulated to like you know convert my life or you know know. whatever and so that's been something that I've really been aware of and had to um, in many ways kind of retrain but so, all to say, in the space of the academy, there's at our particular academy to your community, there's an alt, mm-hmm. uh you know, basically a place where you can go and kneel. And at the first one, I was like, oh, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I, like, uh, I don't want I don't want I don't want to. Oh, I'll just sit right here. I don't think. And then there were these other little altars around the room. And the one that I was drawn to was, of course, Mary. Mm. Um, And ended up every time I would, I would return uh, to our sessions of the academy and just kneeling with Mary. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, anyway, there was something about the practice of it Mm. that helped me, right? Yep. Lean into the discomfort and realize like, okay, this doesn't kill me. This actually brings me life. Yes.
1: Yes yes well you know and lament is so different than complaint because i think right you know w- w- again we're a society like you got to get over it so you know but some people get stuck and so then they complain but lament always leaves this room for slivers of god to redeem something um i always i i, I mean I, I really do believe that lament is courageous because it's like i'm going to boohoo till i can't boohoo anymore i'm going to sit with a thing till i can't sit with it anymore um, and still believing that God will be your your comma, but, you know, yeah. comma, but God will, uh, comma, and yet shall, shall we live. And um, I will be found in the land of the living. It's, it is, um, it is courageous. It is to say right now I feel so broken, comma, but by God's grace, I might feel brilliant or be made brilliant. It's, um, it's, it's no small thing.
0: No. Small thing. Yeah. So, of course, uh, we know that where there is sorrow, there's also joy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that is, of course, another uh, theme that I see in your life and know about you. Um, Joy and embodiment. Yeah. um, Celebration and praise, as you say, wearing tool skirts and twirling through the aisles of Whole Foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if you just say, what is joy to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what does it look like in this particular moment in the midst yeah. of yeah. the revolution?
1: Yeah. I think it's Macrina Whitaker. I don't know th- if that's the correct uh, pronunciation of her last name who says that joy and sorrow are sisters. They live in the same house. And I, and I live with that reality that, um, that yes, we being may endure for the night, but joy comes from the mo- uh, comes in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, we used to sing this song, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. And um, the church mothers and the church fathers were basically saying, Lisa, we're, we're, gonna te- we're gonna teach you that joy is going to be your resistance. You know, like every day I wake up in this black body and I wanna dance and I wanna sing Biggie Smalls on the top of my lungs and I can raise my hands in worship. Or I'm gonna go take a run, or have a dance break in the middle of um, of a workout. It's my way of saying, um, for all of the things that might try to take me out, joy becomes like my superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, right now. Uh-oh. I think one during like COVID-19, like shelter in place, I felt like my emotions were always on 100. If I felt sad, I felt sad. But when I felt joy, I felt immense joy. If I was eating a good meal, I was like, okay, how does this bring me joy? When I would Marco Polo with a friend, how is this bringing me joy? When I would get a handwritten letter, how is this bringing me joy? And I would let that, that those moments of joy be like my manna um, to, sustain, like to sustain me. Um, I'm a very embodied person. I, I danced a lot during Shelter in Place. In fact, uh, I danced probably, probably four times a week to a lot of um, Instagram DJs. Ninth Wonder was is my favorite. He's a North Carolina, North Carolina um, genius. And um, But it reminds me, like, my ancestors, that's some of the ways that they shake off trauma. And so it's my way of shaking off trauma is, like, just by, you know, like literally leaning into, leaning into dance. So I, um, I move a lot, okay. I, I move a lot. And I think now in this new revolution around Black Lives Matter movement, um, uh, dance again is something that I've been doing. I've also been pacing my house um, as a way of like, and I've been seeing that song, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. To, just to remind me like when I smile at a person, although, Typically behind a mask. Um, mm-hmm. um, when I greet my neighbors, when I'm in the presence of children, even socially distanced, um, that like not to let any of those moments pass me by as a as a means of like how God might be breaking in to um, the hurts and pains of life with with this unspeakable unspeakable joy. Um, in my bio, I always say that I'm a glutton for joy. I honestly believe that if we keep our eyes open, kind of like seeing with kingdom eyes we might see more than we see and we might feel more than we feel um a meal won't just be a meal it'll be like a heavenly banquet and a dance party isn't a dance party it's it's dancing with the communion of saints if you can if you can see with new eyes you'll see like oh all around me um i can make this moment into a moment of a moment of joy
0: Yeah. so you're an ambassador for yeah. For Lululemon, Lemon. <laughs> um, tell me, I mean, I know about Lululemon. Other people might not. So tell us about that. Yeah. Of course, I've seen that in this time of uh, social distancing and work from home that their stock has gone way up because yep. every, everybody's buying their clothes because they're yep. comfortable. So, working out from home. <laughs> yeah. Working out, all yeah. of that. Um, so tell us about it and, and how, how did you find yourself uh, being an ambassador for them? Yeah. And what does that look like? So Lululemon, Lululemon is a, I want to say
1: they're a wellness brand. I don't want to say they're just a fitness or athletic gear brand. I mean, though, you know, their clothing um, was like kind of first maybe embraced by the, by the yoga community. And, um, and still lots of yogis love their work, but um, also to have a wonderful clothing for, um, you know, cyclists. And I mean, I, though uh, CrossFit, I have I have some thoughts about CrossFit, but that's the modality that I tend to to lean into. Um, they just have some great great clothing, and but oh, but really a wellness a wellness brand. And um, Lululemon does a beautiful job of celebrating International Women's Day. And a few years ago, they invited me to um, speak at one of their International Women's Day. In fact, some of the Lululemon representatives in Nashville were with us, um, we're in the same region. And so um, that kind of began my relationship with them. And then did another International Women's Day with uh, Reverend Angel, who's just a wonderful, um, yeah, just a wonderful Zen uh, 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 person. I mean, she just is, yeah. Reverend Angel's just phenomenal. But we did some, uh, some work together for the, uh, another International Women's Day. And I think the thing that, uh, that I love, I say that this as a pastor, is when my community starts to see me not as a pastor of a church, but as a pastoral presence in the neighborhood, the community you know? And I feel like folks at Lululemon just began to see me as, Oh, Lisa kind of moves and dwells among us. It's not that she goes to that church and she does some stuff for them. And then like comma on the side, does some stuff for us. But like she loves our community. And I think, um, it was uh, different for them to ask a pastor. I call myself a life enthusiast and a pastor is what it says on my picture mm-hmm. in our Lululemon store here in Raleigh. But, um, but I, I don't take it lightly to, to have earned, and I want to say earned, earned the trust of folks in my, in my community. And I, I, I would just encourage anyone who might be a pastor who's listening to this is to ask yourself, um, to what extent have you maybe limited your pastoral presence to the people who are on a role or directory? And uh, to never take for granted that you also get to be the pastor of the barista who makes um, that drink that they know by heart, and you get to be the pastor to the person um, who rings you up uh, at whatever store you you go to or whoever 's on the treadmill beside you or the rower beside you, like what does it look like to be good news embodied for for folks in, in your in your neighborhoods? Um,
0: yeah, I, yeah. I too have found that um, my pastoral work and ministry has transcended any Mm -hmm. church wall, and that through the practice of teaching dance and yoga, Mm -hmm. uh, there that's part of my pastoral calling. Yep. Um, Yep. And and a really important part of it. Yeah. uh, That folks who might not step into a church building yeah. will step into a workout space, yep. a, yoga, a yoga studio, uh, you know? And so there's this really beautiful opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. And I would say even
0: too for, you know, Lululemon, most people don't
1: attach that brand maybe with blackness. <laughs> right. That's probably not the, the two things that they would put together. And so I think for folks to walk into Lululemon, uh, to a Lululemon store and to see, this black woman um, on the wall. Uh, one of my dear friends, who uh, is also a Lululemon ambassador for um, a nearby store in Durham, she, you know, she's on the wall, and like for young black girls, they actually take their pictures underneath it. For you know, I just think e- even then, you know, no, no institution is going to be perfect, but I can at least commend when institutions want to like shift by actually taking action. And mm-hmm. so I'm great. I'm grateful to be a Lululemon ambassador. Yeah. And I love the leggings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. I've heard I they're that. I've actually not ever bought, um, beyond yoga is my, is the brand I love. Um, well, Claire, I might have to a conversion
1: experience. Your, your heart is strangely warmed and your legs are strangely compressed. Don't worry. I got you. Okay. We'll I'm talk. Good. Okay. We'll talk. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> um, well, I am aware of our time mm-hmm. and of course, uh, respect that. And, Always give great thanks uh, for any time I get to mm. so spend. So good, so uh, good. French and, gift, yes, it is, and one that has spanned many, many years. And mm-hmm. um, as we mentioned in the beginning, we yeah, living together. And I will say, Lisa and I, along with our friend Andrew, were on the same—I don't even know what we call it—but cooking and cleaning
1: uh, team.
0: team. Oh God god bless and it's just it was a season (laughs) that's all i'm gonna say
1: a lot of black beans and a lot of sweet potatoes lentils a lot (laughs) of lentils right
0: oh a lot of lentils i i tell my husband that still to this day that i don't like eating lentils
1: yeah i it's i'm always like (laughs) all right
0: yeah um and so just anyway, look back on that time, of course, with um, a lot of tenderness and compassion and, mm-hmm. and thanks, thanksgiving, because it, um, as you said in the beginning, those times shape us. And uh, if we are too quick to cancel them, then we cancel, right? That's right. Part, That's of, right. part of who we are and part of our learning right. and, our, and our journey. So I wonder just as we close, if you might have, a scripture, a story, mm. a blessing, um, an invitation that you would mm. leave leave with us. Mm.
1: There's so many things
0: that are kind of swirling
1: around for me right now, um, and I'm certain that when I get off of this conversation with you, I'll think, "Oh, why not that?" But I think the two things truly that have that keep coming up for me. Um, are are, are, it it, that 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 i'm just gonna go ahead and share i think one is that song that um the song that's like in my gut um whispered to me sung to me by um by the women who raised me in the church that this joy that i have the world didn't give it to me this joy that i have the world didn't give it to me this joy that i have The world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. And I just might say, if there's anything that feels like it's being robbed from you, maybe it's um, this confidence that I have, this life that I have, this moment that I have. I don't know what your fill-in-the-blank is going to be that you might hold to the fact that God holds you, that the world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. And the second thing is, um, in my community, we say one of our core values is that our language is blessings. And we anchor ourselves in that because the last act that Jesus has with his disciples is not giving them a manual um, for how they need to live out their lives. It says that he lifts up his hands, and he begins to bless them. And as you know, he ascends uh, to the heavens, the disciples bow down and begin to worship. And I think, what was Jesus saying that would cause them to like, fall down on their faces? Um, in this shift season that we're living in in the world, what would it look like for you to offer up such generous words, whether of like what you believe this world can look like or of people who to people who are hurting or even to yourself, that folks would not want to know what to do with themselves except to be overwhelmed by the beauty of your blessings. Um, you hear it said often that our words create worlds. May it be so, may it be so.
0: for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. And if you have questions about the work of anti-racism or about this particular podcast episode, please email us at academy.upperroom.org. Please share this podcast with others. May it be a prayer, a guide, an inspiration, a beacon of hope, a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of us all. hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation and to learn more about academy offerings visit us online at academy.upperroom.org